0: Good morning. Uh, so, that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, I mean, just thank, thank you guys, um, the worship team, for doing that. That's the song that I would always sing to my firstborn Victoria when she was a baby and to, to all my other kids every time they wouldn't be able to fall asleep. That song, uh, I don't know how many thousands of times I've sung it, but it just, uh, just has a really special place in my heart. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about today. So, today we are uh, talking about, we're actually starting a brand new sermon series called questions that matter. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to be answering seven questions that you submitted uh, as a church. Both our campuses submitted in the weeks prior. Now, we're doing this because we believe firmly that God is not finished with us yet. If you're a follower of Christ, you know that when you gave your life to Jesus, this was was a uh, one-time, once-and-for-all thing. Your eternal security was set. However, while your eternal destiny might have changed instantaneously, your everyday circumstances might not have changed, right? This is the difference difference between salvation and sanctification. Salvation is once and for all, but sanctification is a daily grind. God does, he can, he will, and he wants to change each and every one of us through the power of the Holy Spirit so that there would be less of us and more of him. But that requires a renovation of the heart, a renewing of the mind, and a restoration of our will. So over these next seven weeks, this is what I want us to do. I want us to wrestle through these questions. And as we do, and as we listen and and work through them, I want to ask us to... Uh, ask God to renovate our hearts. I, I want us to ask God to restore our wills and to renew our minds. And although there may be some questions that you're like, well, I already know the answer to that, let's pray that as much as we may know the answer, that God would give us the will and the strength to actually do it. All right, so let's pray. Father, as we address this question, as we open up your word, we thank you that your word is true, that it's holy, and that you call us to worship you, and that you have spoken to us so deeply through your word. So speak to us afresh today for your glory, honor, and fame. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today's question is, here it is, repentance. It's all about repentance. What is repentance? How do we do it? When we repent, do we have to list each sin? What if we miss? What if we miss one of them, right? So repentance, what a good and practical question. Well, as I said in my prayer, the Bible is our source of truth. God has spoken through his word, and he has addressed this topic at length through it. So we're going to open up God's word. We're going to actually look at Ezekiel chapter 14, and we're going to see what this book what this Word, what God has to say to us through His Word on the topic of sin and repentance. Because here's the thing, without the Word of God, in today's world, sin is just what makes you feel bad. Sin is what causes feelings of guilt and shame. And if you don't have those feelings, then it's not sin. That is what sin is defined as in our world of sin tolerance in our world of everyone has what, whatever truth is good for you is, is good for me. But as we look at the word, as we open up the word, which is our source of truth, we see no, sin, is, sin, sin should and ought, when you are close and you have a vibrant relationship with God and he has saved you, yes, sin ought to make you feel guilty and shameful but we know that because of the Word of God and what God has to say through it, right? So that's why we're opening up the Word and why we're going to be looking at Ezekiel in particular. Now, here's the thing. As, we, as you're opening there, as we, before we even read through that, we need to understand that there's, there's not a difference in... Uh, there's not a difference in sin between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but, but there's a difference in the way that we perceive and we view sin and the way that it was viewed and what repentance was viewed as in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So when you think of sin, when you think of forgiveness, when you think of that in the context of the Old Testament, sometimes we think of the sacrificial system, right? Or we think of little baby lambs uh, being sacrificed. We think of animal blood being shed, people making a mistake and maybe, you know, God opening up the heavens and and striking them down. I don't know if you've ever said this. When I was a kid, sometimes, you know, I'd be like, oh, don't sin in church. Because if you sin in this building like God is going to smite you, but it's okay when you're out. Like, it's good oh, anywhere else, but not, definitely not on Sunday morning, right? And, and it's, it's wrong, right? It's, it's wrong, but this is, this is kind of the view that a lot of us have when it comes to sin, and, and, and a lot of that is due to the influence of the Old Testament, right? We think wandering in the desert 40 years is because of sin or being captured and put in exile. and on a, this, this is how a lot of us actually view sin and repentance. It's through an Old Testament, an old covenantal view of sin. But thank the Lord that we have the New Testament. And when you look at the New Testament and you look at the New Covenant, uh, other than that story of Ananias and Sapphira, who, who died immediately because of their sin of greed, we think of sin and repentance, when we think of those words, we think of grace. We think of forgiveness, we think of redemption, we think of chains being loosed, we think of being set free and experiencing new life. We think of prostitutes, thieves, and murderers being forgiven and starting afresh. We think that there are, you know, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament view of sin, we think, hey, you are beyond, although you may have felt like you were beyond the point of forgiveness, you are forgiven and now you can walk in new life. In other words, when we think of the Old Testament and we think of sin, we think of law, the word law, but when we think of sin and forgiveness in the New Testament, we think of the word grace, right? We think of law and we think of grace. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he coins this term called cheap grace, cheap grace. Now, Bonhoeffer lived through some terrifying times. He was a seminary student, a pastor, and a professor during the rise of Hitler. He saw the church in Germany move from orthodoxy to heresy, from Christ on the throne to Hitler on the throne, from the exaltation and glorification of God to the exaltation and glorification of the Third Reich and Hitler. As a result, Bonhoeffer noticed that the church in and amongst their leaders and the congregation would often say something with their lips but live in a completely different way. They would know what the right words were to say, but that wouldn't actually reflect their life. Now, in Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace. And here are a few quotes from his book. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. It was true then, and it's true today. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks' wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace without price, grace without cost. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, or a system. Cheap grace amounts to a denial of the living word of God. In fact, cheap grace is a denial of the incarnation of the Word of God. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, and absolution without personal confession, and, and this, I love this here. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. grace. Cheap grace is just viewing the entirety of your relationship with God as that one decision moment, salvation moment where you made that and you confessed your sins to Christ, and living your life the way you want to, under your authority, and in your, according to your will, and not according to God's will. That is cheap grace, grace without discipleship. Now here's the thing. We all have habitual sins. You may not be struggling with an habitual sin now, but you may have last year, or, but the majority of followers of Christ are struggling with habitual sins. And the reason we are not experiencing freedom from our habitual sins, the reason we're stuck in this cycle is because of a misunderstanding regarding repentance. Now, here's the cycle, right? Many of us are prone to this cycle because of habitual sin. We are tempted, we sin, we feel guilty, we're ashamed, we ask for forgiveness, and then there's a period of no sin. And then what happens? We're tempted, right? we sin, we feel guilty, we're ashamed, we ask for forgiveness, and then there's a period of no sin. And then what happens? We're, you know, I could go on and on and on again, and this describe what many of us have struggled with for years and are still struggling with. We struggle to break this cycle of sin in our lives, so, so what do we do? We just try harder, right? We, we try harder not to sin. We try harder not to do this. Right. Sometimes we try to cut off temptation, but what happens? We just step back into it over and over and over again. So how do we experience freedom from the habitual cycle of sin in our lives? Well, let's look at Ezekiel chapter 14. Now, let me give you a little bit of context here. Ezekiel chapter 14, right, verse 1, it says, Some, some of the elders of Israel came to me, came to Ezekiel and sat down in front of me. So let me give you some context as to who me is, right, in this word. Who, who is me, that's Ezekiel, and who the elders of Israel are and what's happened up until this point. Now Ezekiel, the me in this passage, uh, was an Israelite priest. He was a prophet who was taken to Babylon among the first wave of captives in Judah in, uh, from Judah in 598 B.C. Right, so what we see here is the, the Judeans are not in Israel anymore. Right, they're not under the rule of King David. They're not under one of the judges. They're not with Moses. So they're, not in, they're, they're not walking to the promised land. They're actually not in the promised land anymore. They have been taken out. They are in exile, and they are in Babylon. And Ezekiel was one of the first priests, and prophets to be taken out in that first wave into Babylon. So the book of Ezekiel actually contains prophetic visions that God gave Ezekiel to share with the Judeans, to share with the Judeans who were living in exile. So everything was different for them. They were not home anymore. They were in a quote-unquote refugee camp. They are away from everything that was normal and everything that they knew was normal. Now the book, of, the book of Ezekiel. I'm <clears throat> just going to grab some water. The book of Ezekiel was, is divided into three parts, and chapter 14, what we read right now, is the first part of the book of Ezekiel, and what Ezekiel, who Ezekiel is addressing, are primarily overconfident Judeans. They are overconfident at this moment in this book right now. And he is sharing announcements of God's judgment against that city and in the temple. So in, verse four, in chapter 14, we see that there's Ezekiel and we see that there are the elders of Israel. Let's look at verse 2 here. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put their sinful stumbling blocks in front of themselves. Should I actually... Let them inquire of me. Now, what we see here is Ezekiel is exposing the sins of the elders of Israel. Now, these were the elders, right? These were the leaders. Now, I don't want you to focus too much on the fact of position and you say, well, well, this, you know, this message is just really for leaders. No, 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 it's not. This is for everyone. This is for us today. This is for the church today. But what we need to understand is that Ezekiel is speaking to the people who ought to have had everything together. These were the people who you would have expected to worship God. These were the people who, if they were living today, they would be in church every single Sunday, never missing it at all. That is who... Ezekiel is speaking to. He's not speaking to people who you knew, oh, these people are total sinners. Like, you just look at them, and you judge them. You don't even have to verbally say anything. In your heart, you're like, man, look at the, the, the filth that is surrounding them. And while judging, yes, is a sin, you see, and you're like, yeah, the, the, those are, you know, you think sinful, and you think those people. No, Ezekiel is not addressing those people. He is addressing people who seem to have had everything together. Now this goes to show you that just because someone might, have seemed, might seem to have everything together, it doesn't actually mean that they do. Right? Although we may dress well or, or put, you know, clean up our houses or, or put on a show or a mask, <clears throat> it doesn't actually mean that everything is worked out inside. And I know especially that Southerners don't know anything about this. (laughs) Right? Like we're just like, we're just, if, if something's going on inside, we always say what it is on the outside, right? The elders of Israel here, if Bonhoeffer was living at this moment, if Bonhoeffer was standing beside Ezekiel, he would point to the elders and say, cheap grace. And I wonder if he would do that to us today. Their actions were right their actions promoted them to the right positions, but the problem was with their hearts. How true is this for us? While sin is often interpreted and seen as wrong actions, sin is birthed in our hearts. It's those moments when we decide to care more about what other people think than what God thinks. That's when sin is birthed in our hearts. Or it's that moment when a, a a glance turns into a repeated look or when a passing comment turns into gossip or when an appreciation of what someone else is doing or someone else else has a healthy appreciation turns into envy or self-pity or when frustration turns into anger and rage. That's when sin is birthed in our hearts. Now as we see in verse 3, this is what it means to set up idols in our hearts. Right the list of situations I just shared is what it means to put stumbling blocks in front of ourselves. In each of these situations we sin when we entertain the temptation that is set before us, but it's important that we understand that temptation is not sin. Right 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 and 14 says this. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that, right? With the temptation, he will also provide a way out. i say that one more time. With the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what is bearable. With every temptation, God will always provide a way out. So we need to flee from sin. So while God will always provide a way out, right, and while this is true and we can trust the Lord in this, why do we often stay needlessly in the situations that always tempt us? Where we know in these relationships, in these circumstances, there will always be a temptation. And we know that because there's always been a temptation in those places. Why do we needlessly put ourselves there? Now, if you look at the end of Ezekiel 14.3, there's a very, very interesting line right here. Should I actually let them inquire of me? This is what God says. Should I actually let them inquire of me? When we sin and we are living in habitual sin, we are saying yes to the evil one and no to God. We are saying that our ways are better than God's ways. We are saying that God is not enough, that he does not fully satisfy, so we need to figure out things on our own. So when we live in this mindset that our ways are better and higher than God's ways, and even though God is providing a way out of this habitual sin and of these temptations, even though God has provided a way out and will continue to do so, when we decide to live in this place, is it any wonder that when something comes up and we begin crying out to God or We ask God for freedom or healing or wisdom on a certain situation. Is it any wonder that when we are here and we cry out to God, all we hear is silence? Should I actually let them inquire of me? God is not saying that he's going to turn a, That he's going to close his ears or turn his back against the Israelites. And that's not what God is saying to us today. But just look at that question. Should I? When you are living in sin, in habitual sin, and crying out to God, what we are doing is we are, you you know, and, and, and you cry out to God when you are living in habitual sin. What we are actually doing is we are using God for our purposes. And we are saying, God, you're just... You're, you're just there somewhere to be asked of for help when I really fully understand that my ways aren't enough. But even if you were to say something, it doesn't really matter because I want to live here. So God, give me your opinion. Oh, it's, you're silent? Well, that's what I thought. I'm just going to keep on living the way I'm living. Maybe your prayer life is exactly summed up like that, but that is not the life that God is calling us to live. That is not the abundant life that God is inviting us into. God is saying, speak, cry out to me, and I will answer. Pray, and I will answer. He, God is a God that heals. He is a God that delivers. He is a God that allows us to experience eternity now, glimpses of eternity now. But we need to deal with this habitual sin in our lives first. Now, thank the Lord, right? Thank the Lord that God is merciful, that He is gracious, that in this particular situation, God is not saying that these elders are hopeless and beyond the point of forgiveness. God is not saying here that no matter what idolatry these elders have bowed down to and no matter how far they have dug in their heels, God is not saying that they are beyond the point of forgiveness. And as we see in verse 4, God says that no matter what sin you and I might have committed, if we come before him, he will answer. If we come before God in repentance, he will forgive. We are never beyond the point of forgiveness. When the Israelites called, no matter what, and you see this all throughout the scriptures, when they called, no matter how far they turned their back against God, God answered because he is gracious, he is merciful. Now they had to deal with consequences, but God answered and he is merciful and God wants to answer you today. God wants to set you free today. No matter what you've done, God wants to speak to you today. God wants to offer you grace, love, and his forgiveness today and give you new life today. We just need to come before him. God is merciful and gracious like this because he loves us and he wants to welcome us home. And he knows, he does this and he knows this because we can never be satisfied or be truly content until we find our place in him. Right? We see this in verse 4 and 5. Therefore, speak to them and tell them, this is what the Lord God says. When anyone from the house of Israel sets up idols in his heart and puts a sinful stumbling block in front of himself, right, habitual sin, And then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him appropriately. I will answer him according to his many idols so that I may take hold of the house of Israel by their hearts. They are all estranged from me because of their idols. God is saying that he wants to answer you today. He wants to set you free today. When we sin, what happens, it's like we're when we sin, it's like we, we estrange ourselves from God. It's like we leave home when we sin and we, and we leave the place that we truly belong. When we sin, it's like we're choosing to live in the water. And what does sin beget? <clears throat> More sin. What do lies beget? More lies. And it's like, it's like we're living in freedom and when we choose to sin, it's like we put on our snorkel mask and we get, get into the water. right? And at first you're like, oh, this is pretty cool. Right? Look, at, look at all the fish. Look, it's a completely different reality. And then you go deeper. And you're like, well, if I go deeper, I've got to put on you know, scuba gear. And then you've just put on more gear onto your back. And you're like, you want to go a little bit deeper? Well, you need to put on another tank. And you want to go deeper even still and not come up, well, you need to get into a submarine. And then if you want to stay in a submarine even longer, you need to bring plants and food and and this and all this. And and what we're doing is we are living our lives thinking that that is reality. That living under the water with all this gear and these burdensome things on our back, that that is reality. When God is actually saying, no, reality is taking that all off. Coming onto the land and experiencing freedom." that perhaps when we live in habitual sin we are actually living the li- a life that we are not designed and intended to live that god is actually saying just take it all off and walk in freedom as i created you to so the way to break this cycle of habitual sin is through as we see in verse 6 it's through repentance or verse 6 Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says, repent, repent and turn away from your idols, repent and turn your faces away from all of your detestable things. Repentance is about turning away. Repentance begins when we acknowledge our sin, when we confess it, when we ask the Lord for for forgiveness, and then we thank Jesus that he has indeed forgiven us, that he's covered the weight, the cost, the punishment of our sins through his death and resurrection. That's where repentance begins, but repentance only fully takes place when we turn away, not when we we turn away. 20 degrees to the side or or not when we put blinders on our eyes so that we can't see the sin anymore. Repentance begins when we turn the other way. And so often all we do is we get stuck in our habitual sin and we feel guilty, we feel ashamed. And we're like, Lord, I know I'm not supposed to be like this, so forgive me, but you just stay there. And this is why it's habitual, because you haven't actually turned away. You're still in this situation where everything around you is tempting you the way that it always has. And you build up these walls. It's like you shut your, you've you built a room completely around yourself, thinking that there is no way out. Because all you see is that room. All you see are the barbed wires. All you see is, are, are the bars right in front of you like this. When in reality, all you have to do is turn around because there's a door. And it's open. And Jesus says, I have already forgiven you. I've already taken the door down. You don't have to burst it down yourself. All you got to do is walk out. Yet all we see is the bars that are right in front of us. And that's what sin does. It mires us in a place. And God is saying, you have to repent. And repentance is what it means to walk out. Repentance is what it means to say, yes, Jesus, I have sinned. This, I have let myself live in this place. I have built this house and this wall. And I even put these bars up right in front of me. I have done this. I have allowed the enemy to tempt me, but I ask that you would forgive me of this, of this, of what I've done, of what I've set aside for me. And now after confessing, you say, so thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven me. Now give me the strength to turn around and walk out. And when you do that, God says, okay, (laughs) sure. Sure. confession is not just about self-pity, not just about asking for forgiveness. Confession is about thanking the Lord for the work that he has already completed and that he already completed on the cross, right, on the cross. When he died and he was raised from the dead, he, is given, he was risen to new life and he wants to raise us to new life and allow us to walk out. So repentance, this is important for us to understand though, repentance is doesn't end, right? So we, we confess our sins, we, we turn around, we walk out, but repentance is not about emptying ourselves of our sin. Repentance is only complete when we fill ourselves with the, a greater affection, with what truly satisfies. So here, here's an example. If you struggle with lust, True repentance is about finding a greater sense of satisfaction and joy in the Lord. It's not about saying, well, this is, this is bad. This is bad. I don't want anything of it. No, it's actually saying, hey, what I thought satisfied, when I, when I gossip and that feeling of, of, of knowing something that someone else doesn't know, that, that feeling that I think, really satisfies, that feeling of, 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 of getting that paycheck or, or getting more money or, or hoarding or buying a new you know, phone or buying something new or whatever that is that is, that is that is winning your heart, whatever it is that maybe it's attention right or it's approval or it's acceptance, whatever that thing is that captures your heart, that you're saying, that is what I truly want and I want it and we fall into that sin because it, it feels good at the, in the moment. Right? And that thing that causes us to go back to that over and over again, we need to admit that that feeling is actually a glimpse, not the feeling of regret, not the feeling of shame, but that feeling, that, that thing that we are longing for, that satisfies, that is actually a glimpse of what truly God has promised for us. Do you see that? What Satan has done is he has taken this thing that our heart longs for, true joy, satisfaction, love, excitement. God, what Satan has done is Satan has grabbed that, and he's like, oh, we, he knows that our hearts long for that. And he has said, I'm going to take a little bit of that and twist it. I'm going to twist the truth and say, the only way that you can get that is by coming to me, and he twists it. And he gets us because part of it is true. Because he knows our heart is truly longing for that. And he is saying, hey, God is, that, that God, you'll never experience it. God is a killjoy. You want to experience that everlasting life, that true abundance, true joy, deep in your heart's true healing, just come to me. And I'll give it to you right now. Just give it to you right now. No pain, no cost, nothing. I'll just give it to you right now. And we believe the lie. And we come to, and we allow ourselves to be tempted, we allow ourselves to walk into sin, and then what happens? Satan smacks us with a bat on the back of our head. He says, I got ya. That's what sin does. And Satan begins building this reality around us, saying, no, no, you're not worth more. You're never gonna get anything more than this. This is all that really, this is what life is all about. It's all that satisfies And the more we fall into habitual sin, the more we build up these walls around our life, the more Satan hits us on the back of our head, the more he just says, he convinces us, no, this is all you're worth. This is all that there is. When God is saying, just turn around. Just turn around. Every sin, we need to understand that every sin that we, every temptation that the enemy uses is actually a glimpse of what God truly wants to give you. So if you struggle with lust, true repentance is about finding a greater satisfaction and understanding that only, that, that true joy, true excitement is actually only found in the Lord. If you struggle with people pleasing, true repentance is about discovering that the Lord loves you no matter what you've done and that he knows the number of hairs on your head that no matter what, he will never turn his back on you. If you struggle with greed, true repentance is about acknowledging that everything is the Lord's and that he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. We often get repentance wrong because we don't fully understand grace. Grace isn't about living a life where it's all about tiptoeing around the dung that is on the ground and hopefully not landing on getting you know stepping on those landmines. That is not grace. Grace is not God giving you the ability to see and walk around that. Grace is about God saying turn around and just run. Run all you want. Run free. You don't need to look down. Just run free. That is what grace is. Grace is about discovering the better life that God wants us to step into. Grace is not a flashlight that we reluctantly carry around in the midst of darkness. Grace is God giving us a floodlight that we confidently hold and it changes reality. So I wanna invite the worship team up and I want us to experience God's grace together. Right? I want us to experience God's grace together. And the way that we experience God's grace is by confessing our sins and walking in repentance. God is saying to each and every one of us today, just turn around. Turn your eyes. Turn your eyes not on what you see here. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely, you know, dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I want us to stand up and and as we worship over this next song, let's offer our sins, let's confess our sins, let's verbally share them, say them, Lord, I'm sorry, Lord, for... And then as we worship, thank him for his freedom. Thank him for the work that he has already completed in our hearts, in our lives. And let's worship and walk in grace and walk in new life. Amen.